Hello and welcome to How to Be an Artist, a new podcast brought to you by Soho House. My name's Kate Bryan and I'm the head of collections for Soho House and over this series I'll be talking to a global lineup of influential contemporary artists who all feature in our art collection. We'll be considering what it takes to be an artist and especially what it means right now. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Jurinda Voigt. Jurinda is a German artist who lives in Berlin. Working principally within the medium of drawing, Jurinda's works have been likened to musical scores, scientific diagrams, or notational thought models. Using a precisely coded system of mark making, the artist gives pictorial form to an array of natural or psychological phenomena. It's rare to find an artist whose work is so steeped in systems and scientific, mathematical and philosophical ideas, but that's also inherently personal and operates as a means to visually express the uniqueness of her experience of the world. Yuinda's work is represented in prominent public collections worldwide, including the MoMA in New York, the Art Institute of Chicago, the Centre Pompidou in Paris, the British Museum in London and the Kupferstick Cabinet in Berlin. She's the Professor of Conceptual Drawing and Painting at the HFBK in Hamburg. Jurin de Voigt, hello and welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, let's start by describing the work that we have in um, the Berlin Soho House collection. It's a work on paper and I suppose I almost hesitate to call it a drawing because the work is so much more than drawing. It's very much about perception and notations of experience. Um, maybe we can start by you telling us a bit about this piece and, and the time in which you created it. Yeah, the, the time when I created this, I worked mainly with um, one certain notation, which is that you write an arrow, so you have one direction, but if you write the next one, you always have in mind the previous uh, last ones, as well as the upcoming ones. And at the same time, of course, you're under movement, so the, the general in a way it looks like a generic direction of a field of arrows um, develop around the paper and in the very end I mean of course each single arrow is also presence and in the end you have like this coexistent field of presence and you don't see where it started and where it ended. Mm. And so what were you thinking about when you made that work? For me, I, I'm so struck by the fact that your work is sort of deeply personal, but then you normally see an arrow and maybe it's on, um, I don't know, an ordnance survey map or a weather map. It feels very functional, an arrow, but in, I know your work is um, is more than functional. Yeah, of course. I mean, in, at this time I worked very with very reduced algorithms or elements or structures where I said, okay, how do I take a very elementar element from my life, write it down to the most uh, extracted way of notation and what is possible to develop out of it. And the error, of course, um, is, uh, is a symbol for direction or being in direction or being um, pointed to something mm. um, and to repeat this all the time in your present is of course like a very meditative meditative moment of being in orientation. I've enjoyed reading about your work in just hearing it described in different ways. I, I don't think it's actually that easy to describe but 
I know that someone's described it as a visualized thought model. You know, you have these yeah. drawings and they're geometric and expressive and they sometimes have handwritten text and numbers and they're, they feel very, very uniquely yours. But at the same time, we're trying to read them. So like if you, the work in Berlin, we're looking at those arrows and we're trying to follow the pattern. We're trying to make sense. Um, and I think this is interesting, this idea of a visualized thought model. Um, what do you make of that term? I mean, of course, I take everything I have as my tools, which is also my education, which I share with my generation. And of course, these conventions of error or of uh, error or of an, uh, yeah, also geometric things or um, mathematical orders, I share with everybody who lives in this kind of civilization. And um, for example, if I want to describe speed, uh, something in speed through space, I write it's uh, 10 kilometer per hour. So it's, you know, how we talk about speed. Yeah. Or the direction of wind or temperature, I write in Celsius as, <laughs> yeah, as, yeah, you know, like that. Yeah. But then, of course, it's a very, it's, always a, a reduction to something specific and then describing uh, trying to find a way to describe this in its structure and also make it possible to use this kind of structure as a score like in music so a time-based um, model to fill it with actually the possibilities possibilities of something so I mean, as you know from your your personal life, you, it's always very unique. And if you made a decision, you made this decision and you can't do the, the other thing at the same time. If you made a decision, it's like that. But if you, it's like you, you're staying in the moment and look at all possibilities this certain moment has without making the decision, but making the decision to focus on all possibilities and if you write this down it's like a, a looking into the possibilities of something so should we go right back to the beginning because i find it fascinating that you're already working in the medium of photography and like many artists you probably um re realized it has such a force of its own you know it, a photograph dictates the way things are perceived and read it's got a functional quality to it so you pivoted and instead you began creating your drawings instead of the photographs and I, I read that sometimes you will find the urge to photograph something and then say right no photography and instead you try and document the sensation or the experience or the physical thing that's interesting to you with the drawing so maybe you can explain that impulse to us and and why you started to do that and and how it how the first drawings looked <laughs> you know when i i did photographs i i think i didn't do the best ones as well um, and, <laughs> and I, I still think my, all my friends do better photographs than me still oh. but <laughs> but um, also I was very focused on um, doing the, that moment where I made this decision I was in the United States and everything which I photographed I thought this picture already exists I know it it exists already and how is it possible to look at something which is so well known 
in a different way or look underneath it or look at its structure instead of always the same surface repeated on and on and that's why i made the decision to to not photograph it anymore but to write down what i would have photographed so i just wrote the words the people i see there the cars driving there the colors the proportions the even i did a lot of drawings but i just counted in um, uh, distances the the fabrics people wear for example so it's like striped striped blonde for example or you right. know like that mm. and um or for parking space it was just gray and green and it was very much reduced in the whole setting to down to these two words and then I so I I um very slowly developed okay what what else can I combine with that for example the, the limousine driving by with certain speed. So I have these three elements, two colors, uh speed and a and a car. Yeah? And it was like looking in a very also looking what is very typical for this situation and what would be the parameters where I recognize this situation on, yeah? Also what makes it recognizable? And and are you trying to make it recognizable to the audience? Would an audience member sort of, if they spent enough no, time with the work, yeah, would they have, would no. they, you're not really looking for figuration, but maybe some impulse they might recognize or sensation? No, it, no, no? It, was, no it was more um, research on my own perception why do I think it's recognizable? Yeah, so that's how I, um, yeah, that was my way to, to decide it. And what, what parameter, which parameters do I need that I recognize it as this situation? And then came temperature to it, then also the frequency of events, um, how, how often cars pass or, um, which radio songs are playing in the background? Um, what's the temperature? Is there wind? What do I smell? And then also other things like what was in the newspaper yesterday, which is still in my mind or things like that. Do you find that rather than a photograph, um, sorry, do you find that compared to a photograph that your memories are much stronger from your drawings? I, by you hearing you describe them, it sounds like they would be even more pungent than a photograph because a photograph reduces everything down. I know in my experience, sometimes I take a photograph, I'm not even really trying to capture the thing in front of me. I'm trying to make a good photograph of that thing. It's like I've seen another photograph. So I'm trying to be like another photograph as opposed to even wanting to be in that moment. Whereas your experience by, by making these quite complex notational systems about frequency, speed, weather, wind, cars, fabric, whatever. Memories. Yeah, it, yeah, it feels like it would be a much more robust memory. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, it's it's also not about um, memory so much. It's it's in, in the yeah, it's it's a documentation of what is now, and then also at the same time it's a score so it's something where people can make up if they if i did then later on more musical based ones or also um or action based ones it's something which you can take the documentation of the situation you take as a score to 
play it again so you can rehearse it again and it's not a and it's not about documentation anymore it's about taking out these typical mom moments and creating this very specific combination as a also of course documentation of a certain cultural moment but then make a like a, a unit out of it and then you can transport it you can repeat it you can play it um you can also in the time if you write it time-based you can make loops you can play around you can mirror it you know suddenly also if you look from above to the situation you can make a game out of it you're looking at this idea of the kind of the complete experience of being in the moment like how do you how what's the process like do you have to work very quickly or do you there or do actually on the converse do you need to work slowly can you make multiple pieces at once or do you just have to focus on one piece no i always worked in in series so because everything is a try and you um and also every writing down has different possibilities so i try always all the possibilities at once and then if you work in different layers with different parameters you just need space and uh, combinatoric possibilities and space for that so you need several pages and then also right the the more at the same time you always have to make decisions on on a pragmatic way on your technique so um, how much is possible to write on a paper before it, it loses its information because it's too dense or um, or, or it's too less and then you cannot enter it or um, and, and then also later on with the colors it's a lot of testing does the, the color stay in the way I need it on the paper or not and is it possible to write with this kind of pen on this kind of ink or you know all these um, internal artist questions <laughs> on the technical uh, part <laughs> is like half of the process as well because if you want to express something it's like your, your language you also your language has to function you know so where do your ideas come from? Do you keep lists of ideas? I mean, I, you've mentioned lots of different things that you're um, inspired by, that you're including geographical directions, flight of eagles, wind patterns, maybe horizon lines. Um, but you also include things which are um, less ephemeral, like popular chart music um, or things that are very emotional, like kisses. Like, where do those impulses come from and how do you keep track of them? No, I never make lists. I'm... Um always watch very um, carefully which topic comes up in my life and then this is added to the previous topics and sometimes other topics also get lost or I leave them away and you come and get combined with the previous ones. Also in the last four years I focus very much on communication an information which um, is, is um, created non-verbal so I try to find new ways of paintings and um, positions of my body which express certain certain 
attitudes or ways of being and trying and uh, try try to develop traces of that which are part of the painting for example and and this is then combined with with opposites of that like um like the completely uh, complete loss of control for example or the intended loss of control by using like a very big cup of ink and throwing it on the paper and it um, spoils it as it spoils it you know without um, being controlled really and and so on so and so there's like everything also what happens to me is is also my material so i i take everything same serious my joy and my sadness and um look at it from all sides and try to um find what it gives me as a possible way to communicate or to look at it and find out what it is mm. I'm not surprised then that you've used a lot of philosophical texts as inspiration. Um, how how do you employ them? What are some of the philosophers that have been important to your career? Yeah, I oh so many. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but I've, it's my like a little bit my like my grandfather in a, in a certain way is like uh, C. G. Jung, C. G. Jung, um, psychoanalytic and uh, writing on archetypes this was very a big discovery for me and i but in the in the end i mean every philosophy is like a, a a brain training so it doesn't really matter what it is if if there is a certain reason why it's interesting then it's easily to start with it and take it as a structure to structure my own archive of memories and what happened to me and see what happens by reading that with it so it's more the joy of something is happening in me and and these texts or music is just the reason to make it happen and your work's often compared to musical scores. You, you've said yourself, my work is like music. You can enjoy it without being able to read the score. Um, and actually, you've had exhibitions where you've had music in the exhibition. And there, are, I know that there are works where you've sort of explicitly referenced um, a piece of music like uh, or an artist like Beethoven. Can you explain the significance of music to you and also tell us about the parallels you think there are between the work that you're making and why you think people compare them to musical scores and why that's a kind of useful um, parallel. Yeah, for example, with the works of Beethoven, I, I mean, you know, I'm coming from a very conceptual side of art. And um, for the Toronto uh, Luminato Festival in, in Canada, they asked me to to work on Beethoven and I knew it because I'm as you know I had an education where I was half normal school education and the other half was a musical education and also um, as a kid I loved Beethoven very much and I always thought of Beethoven as the composer with the most true widest emotional spectrum um, and not manipulative, just very true. 
in what he's telling about. And I like this very much. And so I tried to find a concept how to work with his um, sonatas. And then took his original score and his notation, his personal notation of, of which attitude has to be used to play it, which speed, which um, changes in, um, uh, in loudness, um, which breaks, all, all this information which makes something specific, also emotionally, is transported by this certain um, musical script. And I took out these references and used them in my drawings as these points where a line ended. And on the other, on the starting point, I had an axis, which I called internal axis, which is like your internal center. And always took one line from there to one of these Beethoven expressions. And also I wrote the word on the Beethoven side, I wrote his word. So the line actually stands then for everything, how it starts, where the reason to communicate or the, the first impulse to um, get in communication or in a, or wanting to speak or wanting to get clear or whatever, um, the, the whole um, distance until it gets a word, you know. So, because this is also, of course, a cultural process um, of language that you have words for something and you are able to, or you think you are able to communicate about this certain thing because you have a word. And so, this Beethoven gave me reason to make drawings about actually everything which come which exists before it gets a word and also all yeah. these mixtures of things which um, interfere and yeah, mix and overlap but but um, turn into a word in the end yeah it's fascinating because i think your work reminds me that words can sometimes be quite empty vessels, and especially when you understand that other languages are maybe mm -hmm. more particular or florid or dense in in some words than others. Like in German, I know that you have words for things we just don't have a word for in British yeah. language, in yeah. English language. And I find that really interesting that we have, when you realize that someone else has got this whole word, word that you can't even use, and it's very particular, and you realize that actually there is sometimes words are a little bit redundant or a bit reduced, um, particularly when you, start thinking about um, translating them. It's a bit like if you think about how much a piece of music really means to you and then you only read the lyrics and just like read them out loud. And of course the music is so much more than the lyrics. And actually you've said that pop music is a kind of storage for individual and collective emotionality, which I thought was really beautiful. Um, why do you think that is? Why do you think pop music can be something that can mean so much to us? <laughs> I mean, it's something very beautiful in the end because it's something you share with so many others. Mm. It's like it's like a, a feeling, or it's very close to that you feel maybe the same, or, or you share this song making a feeling in you, in you, or you, sh you you share the reason to make something in you, and the reason is the song, for example, and um, and it's it's like with it's like with movies, if these movies with. Uh, 
um, everybody has seen it's like sharing a collective um, narrative and I mean you have you just have a certain lifetime but this the, the time of the song or the time of the movie you import it in your unique lifetime and you share this that you replace this to instead of doing something by yourself and you share this with others and it's something which connects us to others in our what happens with us you know so you have the same um, reasons why you feel something and emotion is definitely a sort of key aspect of your work i was talking in the introduction about this kind of duality that there is in your practice between things which exist in the world of codes and signs and algorithms we were talking about the arrows in the in the berlin piece but conversely there's so much expressiveness and you're tackling emotive subjects you're talking about your own happiness your own sadness you've you've looked at like algorithms for kissing before um so i'm curious if you're making work which is so um uh, expressive and and deals with things which are emotional are you looking for an emotional response in the viewer do you think much about the viewer when you're making the work uh no i don't think about the viewer when i make the work it's some it's more a, a dialogue with with myself and mm. but i see myself very much just as a i mean i'm very much part of my culture of my generation and what happened to me happened also to a lot of others so um, actually my um, my own identity i don't feel it so much that it's my identity which only belongs to me i think i share it with many others so it's more about so I have a lot of trust that what I'm talking about, because, and also because I'm a human as the others as well. I mean, to all happen these things where we don't have words for <laughs> and would like to have a language. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's it's actually more sharing this this aim to find a language to what is happening to us in life. And you introduce color into your work at a certain point. There hadn't really been much <laughs> color before, and now your some of your latest work is very colorful and, and yeah. saturated. Yeah. Um, why why did it suddenly um, become necessary and exciting for you to work with color? Did you feel it brewing for a little while, or was it just a <laughs> sudden decision? Or how does that happen? Oh, I was so happy when I could start to work with <laughs> color because <laughs> I mean Aww. I mean it's I mean the, the world is full of color it's not black and white so that's why it was yeah. necessary it was logical to use colors but I uh, it was not so easy for me to find a, a concept which allows me to work with color and I, it started then with this work botanic code where I went to botanic gardens and just made a research on which colors do I see first second, third, fourth, fifth on a plant and then had a, a color stripe, yeah. And um, so actually what I see gave me the color. I just went there with the color measurements and hold it to the flower and wrote, wrote down the number. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, so, so it, it was also to not make a decision on colors by what I like, so, but to what influences me so what really where I can't look away what falls into my eyes and I 
uh, without that I made a decision that I like it. So what strikes me? And so that's the way how I went through nature and then collected colors in certain seasons and certain places in the world. And um, yeah, it was uh, very big fun. And from there, I also later on, I allowed to myself also other reasons to collect color. For example, one was to collect a color which I miss most at the moment. So it was always something which made me complete to what I brought with me to the studio and what was like the missing thing to make me complete. And then this was yellow for this day or... Van Gogh's favorite color. It's a very, very emotive <laughs> color, isn't it? Yellow, yeah. Or also in, in autumn and everything gets, there's these few days when the sun goes through the yellow leaves and it's all this kind of very strong impact on the retina in your eye and you are mm. used to think, oh, just I just want even more, more yellow, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, things like that. Or also when you work with... Um, with blue a lot, then you all you, you develop in yourself like the aim to yellow as well or to orange or yeah. I think it's interesting that you call it collecting colors. And I think that's so fascinating that you wanted to introduce color, but you came up with a system by which you would introduce color. Because of course there are many artists that would just start just throwing color around and almost do it impulsively. But you don't sound like you- I admire them. Yeah. Oh, you don't. Yeah, it doesn't sound like you could give yourself that artistic license or that sort of impulsive abandon. I mean, now I, I can do it, but it took me twenty years actually. Wow. Yeah, when I started as a student, it was like not possible as a reason to say because I like or I don't know why. No, it, I always had to have a reason. And of course, even if I now just do it intuitively or I always ask myself, why have I done this? And it's good to be clear about it as well. I read in an interview that you were toying with the idea of not using text in your work anymore. It's been there since the beginning. And I thought that was fascinating um, because I was surprised that you were saying to a journalist that you were thinking about changing your practice because it's kind of unusual for an artist to talk about how they might change before they have changed. Normally you have a new exhibition and the work has changed and you explain it afterwards. And I thought there was that this great level of openness. And I obviously understand talking to you now that you, you're very rigorous in your practice and you're kind of making decisions and questioning those decisions, which is part of the work. Um, and it seems unusual to me anyway that you would talk about that before doing it so I guess my question is twofold have you given up text and and why why did you talk about it <laughs> have you been thinking about it for a long time um, actually yes in my actual work I gave up text completely it's only color um, squares or triangles or like that um, and will you never use it again? Do you think you've gone, you've completely given it up or just at the moment? Can you speak I hope for the not. future? Oh, wow. Okay. So you felt like it's something <laughs> you, need, you needed to remove it. Why? Uh, I don't know. I've, uh, I don't know. It's like yeah, this, this artistic process is like traveling and you don't really know what comes after the next hill. So, um, <laughs> 
I don't have like the map for it, what's coming up. But um, yeah, I don't want to lose all these things, otherwise nothing is left, you know. <laughs> now I, <laughs> I need to uh, um, have some tools, yeah. But it's also, it's interesting to, it's also very important that you say goodbye to things which you always think they are essential or very important. And what is happening if you um, get rid of them and um, it's also, was very, it's, it's also like a thing, a challenge to be brave, to make things which where you thought it's not possible and then you do it and yeah and you see it's possible so i guess the challenge is what do you replace the text with was that the was that the thing that was interesting to you that the text maybe sometimes was um something that was a bit easier and that you wanted to make it harder what was it about the text that you wanted to eradicate i mean text had also different functions but um i of course, I made the discovery that when you have a certain shape and a certain color to it, you don't necessarily need any more a word to name it because this already tells you something. And and if you would name it, then you would, in a way, illustrate it at the same time with language. And this doesn't make sense. So I developed a certain also very deep trust in shapes and colors also in relation to my research on archetypes so not everything you have to name anymore because some things speak for themselves very strongly yeah in it in a pictorial language which is very interesting um in um compared to a word because it go, it's much faster and uh, refers to very deep um, experiences in, in the one who looks at it. For if you look at something which looks like has the color of water or the shape of water, then it refers to all memories and experiences which you carry in you, which you had with water. And, you, you, and then you look at this certain kind of shape and this, it's like containering <laughs> your your own experience to this moment into the shape. So it makes anyway something with you with with this, which is behind any kind of word. But it's still very specific and clear. Yeah, that's fascinating. Did the events of twenty twenty find their way into your practice? It was very unreal for all of us this global pandemic but then it was also very real as well we had a lot of time <laughs> to sit still we were doing things which we weren't used to doing and you have this ongoing relationship between structure and order and chaos and chance in your work so I'm wondering how the the chaos um, of 2020 has affected you and how you think it might affect the art that you make <laughs> yeah my when I look back to it what happened with my work I must see uh, something getting more structured and more structured and more technical done in a way which is, I would say, with a little bit distance, more um, reaction of 
being concentrated, also trying to get order in yourself. I mean, if you know it from yourself, it's also a psychological fact. If you um, in if you feel disorder, you make you start making order. And and the mixture of it makes life possible. So what what is missing? You do to make it um, equal. So you feel like because the world was so chaotic, your work became more structured. I mean, it was always structured, but now it was really reduced to structure itself, and to mm. it was it's consisted only of being related to something and this was like the main aspect was orientation and out of these fields of orientation came then like, like uh, color fields but in a in a topographic way but it was um, constructed of, out of certain rules of how to orientate on something yeah my final question is the title of this podcast is how to be an artist and what's your take on that how should one be an artist why should one be an artist <laughs> easy <laughs> it's very easy. either you have to be an artist or not <laughs> so an artist is um is someone who always develops also, out of the difficulties, you develop something new and construct something good, or you make the the, the challenge to yourself to you also fight against things which try to be um, do not um, lead to anything good anymore, and you turn it around and make something good out of it. And it's also very much to, I mean, we, we live in this world which we actually don't really know. We just try to, to get uh, along there. And it's, of course, highly fascinating to look at it closely and look at it, what is happening to you, and then try to communicate about it and share it. That's very well put. <laughs> um, Ewan Devoit, thank you so much for your time and for speaking with me. I'm a huge fan of your work and I'm um, really looking forward to getting back over to Berlin so I can see yeah. more of it and, to, and see you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much, Kate. <laughs>